Okay, tonight I'm actually continuing a series that we did last summer called the Effective Kingdom Prayer Series. And this is uh, chapter four, which was planned, Paul, on prayer. But um, if you'll look at Roman numeral two in chapter four, B and C, we'll actually be looking at Paul's prayer life. And I had always planned to do that. And this morning, I actually got another idea while reading a book uh, by a well-known leader of a movement of a uh, parachurch organization named Navigators. I was reading a book by Jerry Bridges uh, called True Community. And uh, he happened to be talking about partnering in prayer. And so tonight's title is actually uh, not correct on the top of your outline there, but it should be Paul's eight requests for partners in prayer. I'd rather say partners in prayer than prayer partners. So Paul's eight requests for partners in prayer. And the reason I kind of would rather say partners in prayer is just to make us think about it a little bit different because, of course, the whole idea of prayer partners is part of the whole TV Christianity thing and so forth. And, and uh, you know, I really don't want to tap into that world too much. But what I do want to say is that I had uh, often studied and given a lot of thought to the things that Paul says that he prays for when he writes to the the 13 letters of Paul and he's writing to both the various churches and then the uh, more uh, individual epistles to his team members, Timothy and Titus uh, and, and Philemon. I've often given thought to the things Paul prays for, and that's actually what we're going to cover in parts B and C of this whenever we present those. And uh, what I'd never thought of till I was reading this is Jerry Bridges made this statement that Paul either mentioned uh, people that were partnering with him in prayer or requested that they partner with him in prayer seven times in his epistles. Now, he didn't list any of those, and I have a thing that I do whenever I, because I read Kindle books, is whenever their scriptures mentioned is I put a comment in with all the scriptures that so that wh- whoever happens, because I give a, different people permission to read my Kindle books online. And uh, so, you know, if they're reading it, instead of having to look up every scripture, they can just click on my comment and read all the scriptures quickly without having to flip around in their Bible and look for scripture. So it just it's just a service I do for the people who are going to come after me and read the Kindle books. And so as I was doing that, I found eight requests for prayer, not seven. So I don't know which one he was missing necessarily because he didn't list any of them. But anyway, so that's why the title's Eight Requests for Prayer, because that's how many I found. So um, uh, before we get into that, I just want to kind of review for the sake of anyone who maybe knew real quickly what we're doing in this uh, series. If you want to listen to this series on podcast. It's on our website under Wednesday night services, and they're from last summer's series of teachings I've done on prayer. My understanding is is that Stephen Leopold kind of stumbled upon those and started reading them, started encouraging some of the other guys to read them, and that's partly what's been responsible for growing these nightly prayer meetings that we've been having Monday through Thursday nights at 6.30 to 8. And uh, believe me... um, I want to encourage that. In fact, I, before we go any further, I want to give us something that's not in our notes. If we are going to fulfill our ministries, 
we talk in Grace Christian Fellowship, a concept we want everyone to know is that every Christian has been given three ministries, and therefore our church has three ministries. And all churches actually have three ministries, whether they know it or not. And our first ministry is to God. The, the Bible actually describes in, in the time of Noah that God looked down from heaven and he was grieved in his heart that he made man. Because when he saw uh, the earth, it was filled with violence and murder and, and everything that everyone did. Uh, the thoughts of man's hearts was continually evil all the time. Part of the glory of being a Christian and part of what the church is all about is that God looks down through the lens of Christ as a Christian, you stand in Christ, and he is able to say, this is my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. But because being in Christ is not only conceptual, but it causes us to become a new creation and, and uh, to begin to be matured and sanctified in the things of God, God actually has bodies of people that he looks down and takes delight in. And that's one of our goals as a Christian. We want to bring pleasure to the heart of God by our worshiping of him, by our adoration of him, by our studying his word, our first and foremost, most important ministry is to God. So, uh, and in fact, any ministry that we do that's not first and foremost founded in our ministry to God becomes perverted and twisted. For instance, it's very easy when you talk about evangelism to talk about your compassion for the lost and your burden for the lost, and Jesus makes it clear that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. But the first and foremost reason we proclaim the gospel is to give glory to God and because he commanded us to. That's why we go make disciples, because of our love for him and our obedience to him. That has to come way before our compassion for the lost. So that's our first ministry. Our second ministry is to the, for the edification and the building up of the body of Christ, especially that covenant community and local expression that we're part of, and as much as it depends on us as we have opportunity for all Christians. Look at Galatians 6, 1 through 10 for that. And then lastly, we do have a ministry to those who are lost, to those who are hurting, to those who have not found a new life in Christ and in the family of God. In real Christianity, a person who's not a committed member of a local body of Christians being discipled is, is, has not been found yet. Jesus is the door into the sheepfold, but the, there, when you go through the door, Guess what you find on, is lots of other sheep. <laughs> and you can't go through the door of the shepherd and, and without getting involved with the other sheep. It's, uh, it, is, it is a modern heresy, uh, one of the you know, great biggest movements in America, unfortunately, is what they call the unchurched Christian movement. People who claim that they're born-again Christians, people who claim that they're followers of Christ, but have nothing to do with any local expression of his body. And let me tell you, even if uh, you haven't necessarily found a church that has a big enough vision or is challenging enough or whatever, you're still called to be involved in whatever church there is. If you're in prison, 
you know, start a church with the other inmates that are Christians. The first church of the locked up or whatever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, um, so that's three ministries that we have. Now, the second thought I want to give us tonight, that's not also, also not in your note, is that there, I want to give us four among many absolutely essential agree, ingredients if we're going to f- be fruitful at all. John 15, 8, regarding ministry, and John 15, 16, I want to quote both verses. John 15, 16, said, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Guess what? It wasn't your idea. Anyone who's really honest about how they came to Christ realizes you were more running from God than seeking him. He came knocking on your door. Now, we all have a different story about the circumstances and the people that God sent to knock on our door. But he came looking for us, and he no, no one can come unless the Father draws him. So um, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, and he appointed you, I appointed you that to bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That is abide. That is meno in the Greek, that, that it should dwell, be permanent. Fruit, that, uh, they, they say today, that in the sinner's prayer model, uh, where there are sinner's prayers at the end of church services and at Christian rock concerts and evangelistic outreaches, they say that somewhere between 3 to 5% of those who come forward actually go on to ever show any signs that there was possibly a real conversion going on there. Now, that is not what Jesus is talking about in John 15, 16. And I'm talking about things like that they start to study God's word, that their lifestyle starts to change, that they start to associate with a Bible study or, or, or other means of Christian fellowship that they witness, etc. Any sign that Christ has come into their life. That's one in 20 or less. We're talking one in 20 to one in 30. So obviously that approach has got to be re-examined. And we talk all the time around here about moving from a decision-making model of evangelism to a discipleship-making model of evangelism. And that's what all these summer classes we're doing is about. So four ingredients in moving from a dis- that. John 15, 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is uh, glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. Bearing fruit is the proof of discipleship. So reading the reverse negative, if we're not bearing fruit together corporately, then we're not real disciples. Now, fruit in the Bible is always two directions, twofold. There, there's the, the character-like fruit of Christ, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruit of Christ-likeness. The fruit of sanctification, of being set apart increasingly to God, the fruit of maturation, of maturing in how much we represent Christ. You know, there's lots of good Christian books out there uh, about why they love Jesus, but they hate the church. And part of bearing fruit biblically is to actually represent Christ together as a community of people more, more accurately. So that we could actually say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
So we could say with Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. So in terms of that, four ingredients that I want to talk about, we always put these two together, but I want to give us four that really need to be together. Four-legged stools that's neat, uh, do a little better than two-legged stools. <laughs> two-legged stools have a tendency to fall over. Um, so uh, we always say there's a time to pray and a time to say. Let me just tell you, there is no point to us having all these prayer meetings if we don't get out there in, in various ministries and ways and shape and form and share the and proclaim the kingdom to people. So part of this is training and how to go out and evangelize. And part of that is cold call evangelism in the cafeteria at Wright State and door-to-door in apartments and so forth. But, you know, one of the things, like if you're doing whiz kids and kids rock, looking for opportunities to begin to mentor and share the gospel and proclaim the kingdom and teach the ways of Christ. And and if we can get away from a one-time view of conversion to a more catechism view of conversion, uh, that will become a very fruitful thing. That's part of moving to a discipleship-making model. And if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, consider reading uh, J.I. Packer's book called Grounded in the Gospel. What's the rest of it, Deanna? Grant, um, oh, yeah. Uh, doing what to believers the old-fashioned way? Build, building up believers or building believers the old-fashioned way. Grounded in the gospel. Excellent book. Grounded in the gospel. Building believers the old-fashioned way. And that's one of those kind of books that you know a lot of people say. There's some books are would be better off to be articles. Frankly, if you read the first four or five chapters in the book, then it becomes sort of doubtful whether you should finish reading the book. But you definitely need to read the first beginning chapters. Excellent book. So when we say there's a time to pray and a time to say, I just want you to kind of know that that's inextricably intertwined. In other words, if you don't have one, you can't have the other. If we have all these programs and Kids Rock and Whiz Kids and we don't have a better prayer effort, we might as well forget it. We won't see fruit that remains. And if we go out sharing all the time, and that's not undergirded with a prayer effort. It's a lot safer to have a prayer meeting with Christians who love Jesus than it is to go out sharing the gospel. And so a lot of Christian efforts on prayer stop there. But there really is a time to pray and a time to say, and as we're going to see with Paul's prayer request tonight, those are inextricably intertwined. Notice how many times Paul is requesting prayer that the gospel may continue to be proclaimed and the word of God may spread rapidly and so forth. And frankly, I just had this on my mind today giving. There's no use to give if you're not going to pray and if you're not going to say. But there's no use to pray and say if you're not going to give. You know, uh, sadly, the the church in our day and age is one of the most underfinanced organizations. Now, in the whole mega church movement, there's all kind of money for gaudy buildings and and all kind of things like that. And one of the things that we started this for is we want to really try to get to a place where a very, very high percentage of the resources that are coming in are paying for ministry to go out, not buildings. And a very high percentage of the ministry is not for people who are primarily pastoral within, but people who are going out. And as we continue to uh, to raise up people, my hope is, is that uh, 
we will have full-time people doing campus, not having the traditional youth kind of group, but having an outreach. There's three high schools that we want to reach from just this one little church, uh, Stiver School for the Arts, Ponitz, and Belmont High School. And we need campus ministers that are eventually on, that are eventually on staff full-time to do that. We can have an entire Kids Rock House, Kids Rock Club ministries at Kemp School and Wright Brothers, and we could eventually have five, seven, or eight people on staff doing all of the various parts of that full-time. Uh, we can have campus ministries at Wright State, Sinclair, hopefully UD, and so, so forth. When we plant a church in Xenia, which we hope to be doing within the three or so years, we want to start campus ministries at Central State and Cedarville College. And um, that would be radical. Start. I, I just can't wait to start a campus ministry at Cedarville University. Now, we'll have to do that covert, and we'll probably get thrown off campus. But what the heck? So... Um, but you know what? Giving. Um, it's amazing to me, supposedly, statistics are that Christians only give uh, an average of 3% of their income to their local church. Just so, you know, I don't want to do a whole teaching on that right here, but tithing is giving a minimum of 10% of your gross income to your local church. Offerings are giving to Christian causes that you believe in above your tithe. And I can't imagine a church that you don't more than tithe to. Like, if you can't at least believe in tithing to your local church, then you're going to the wrong church. Really. If you can't believe in the ministry of what they're doing enough to give at least 10% of your income, then why are you going there? What are you working for? So, uh, and then there's actually uh, your attendance. Uh, they say the average Christian shows up for the Lord's Day about 40 out of 52 Sundays these uh, nowadays. So 80% of the time we make it to the Lord's Day. Believe me, that's a completely modern phenomenon. Christians through the centuries considered the Lord's Day a very holy thing, and you you know you just don't miss unless you know you're sick to the point where you might actually be spreading diseases or something. Uh, you might want to stay home if you got a really bad flu <laughs> or whatever for the sake of the other kids. But there's really a thing called the warm body principle, and it really does add to the spiritual momentum just when people are faithful in their attendance. That's true at Wright State and, and any, any outreach ministry you're doing. So those four ingredients. Now, with that in mind, this series called Effective Kingdom Prayer there's two key verses that are, are, are the uh, foundation of this series. The first one, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus would not give us something to pray for that we're not supposed to be working toward. His kingdom is now. He said, You're the kingdom of God is in your midst. One of the things that any theology, if you look at all the various theologies about the millennium, what they call dispensational premillennialists, uh, historical premillennialists, all millennialists, and postmillennialists, no matter what you, whatever view of preterist or partial preterist that you take on the Mount Olivet discourse and so forth, the, almost everyone agrees the kingdom is already and it's not yet. Right? So there's, at, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom, 
was in Christ. Paul said in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Wherever the Holy Spirit's presence is being manifested, there is a present manifestation of the current reign of King Jesus. He came, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, John 15, 26 and 27, is to bear witness of Jesus. Wherever the Holy Spirit is manifesting, he's going to open up your eyes to the implications of the Lordship of Christ. You're going you're, you're gonna to have magnified for you. In other words, you're gonna, magnification doesn't change the, the, an object. It just adjusts our ability to see what is really there. The Holy Spirit magnifies. He becomes a set of lenses so that we can see the reign of Christ. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So one of the things you'll notice if you study this out through church history, all moves of God bring the emphasis of the kingdom less in the future and more to the present. When you're really touching an experience with the power of God and the Holy Spirit, the kingdom will become more present in your theology. I always say there's Jesus is Lord, and there's Jesus is Lord, and there's Jesus is Lord. <laughs> and uh, God needs to open our eyes up so that we uh, understand that when Officer Diaz of the Beaver Creek Police Department pulls me over on the way home from Lowe's one night and gives me a ticket that Jesus sent him. I hate to admit it, but uh, <laughs> so, I can't rebuke the devil or anything like that. Jesus is probably saying, I want you to drive slower on the way home from Lowe's at 1030 at night. So praise you, Jesus, for Officer Diaz. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's uh, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of, of what teacher you get. He's Lord of why you have troubles with your roommate. God blesses you or afflicts you with roommates according to your need. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, et cetera. So uh, hopefully we see what I'm trying to just say. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, or by, and that's the Matthew version, I think Luke says, that by the spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. When the kingdom comes, demons freak out. There's a clash of kingdoms wherever God is manifesting his kingdom, and evil is driven back. We don't go and do the Americanized gospel like, won't you please accept Jesus so I feel more accepted? We proclaim that he's the king. He reigns, and he's offering you reconciliation to the right kingdom. And, and a chance to get on the right side of history and have your life actually count for something instead of being wasted. And outside of Christ, your life is not worth living. Second verse that's the theme of this series is the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That's the James 5, 16. Um, that's the last part of it. Don't have time to, the rest of it's on your page there. But if there's effective prayer, we always talk about reading the reverse negative here. Um, King, New King James adds the effective fervent prayer. If there's effective prayer, then there's ineffective prayer. 
and really what the, the reason this is this series is called the effective kingdom prayer series is we want to pray effectively so one of the reasons tonight we're going to look at the eight times that paul mentions people partnering with him in prayer or people paul requesting that they partner with him in prayer and he specifically tells them what he wants them to be praying for him about First John 5, 14 and 15, it's not in your notes, but you should know that I would really encourage you to memorize these verses. But it basically says that uh, we know that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So reading the reverse negative, if you're asking things that aren't according to God's will, he doesn't hear you in some very real sense. Thank God he doesn't, because if God answered every prayer I was asking for in the, in the history of my Christian life, I would have shipwrecked for a good long time ago. Not that I haven't crashed a bunch of times, but, uh, you know, not so much that he couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again and get me <laughs> in the, keep, keep, you know, keep this thing moving forward, so to speak. So uh, the truth is, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, First John 5, 14. And if he hears us, then we know, we know, we know, know, know that we have that for which we've asked. So a big key to effective prayer is pray scriptural prayers. Because we know that if they're scriptural, then they're according to his will. People want to make it so nebulous, like, how do you feel? Like, I feel this. <laughs> I believe in being led by the Spirit, but one of the things is that the Spirit of God will always agree with the Word of God. Study God's Word, and you'll know what you should pray. So... Uh, now, three real quick quotes to review, and then I get into what. Uh, hopefully, I still have. Uh, I still have almost an hour left. Uh, get into the, these eight things. Uh, quote one: When all is said and done regarding prayer, there's often more said than done. I don't know who said that quote, but it, author unknown. Great quote: When all is said and done regarding prayer, there's often more said than done. <laughs> Uh, I would, I'm really hoping that we can, uh, I, and I just commission all of you who are here tonight to get this word out to Grace Christian Fellowship. I hope that prayer will start to snowball in our church. I know there's some brothers who pray at Sydney's house at 8.30 on Sunday mornings uh, before our 9.30 adult Sunday school and in our first wave of kids Sunday school. And there's a Friday night prayer meeting. And then there's Monday through Thursday, 6.30 to 8. And people can pray whenever whenever they get together. I hope there's prayer going on in married couples' households and single brothers' households, etc. Quote two, prayer is a dynamic interplay between God and us, whereby his redemptive kingdom purposes are birthed and established. You want to know what to pray? God, Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. When the, the guy says to Jesus, if you're willing, you could heal me. And Jesus didn't say, nah, I need to pray about whether I'm willing or not. He said, I am willing, right? God's purposes are reconciliation, redemption, restoration. He came, to, uh, Acts 3.19 talks about the period of restoration of all things. God actually wants to bring some measure of restoration into every area of the 
of the uh, earth that was affected by the fall of man. Wow. Did you hear that? God wants to bring significant measures of restoration. That's very clear in Isaiah, Psalm 110, Psalm 2. Significant measures of restoration into every area of human endeavor, in, in every area of creation, the animal kingdom, the, the environment, everything that was affected by the fall of man. And the Bible, Acts 3.19 talks about Jesus whom heaven must retain until the period of restoration of all things. It's basically saying Jesus isn't coming back until this restoration is accomplished. Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The feet are the body of Christ. So in some degree, the body of Christ is going to be exercising servanthood leadership, dominion, in all sorts of spheres of inhuman endeavor in every, among every tribe, tongue, nation, and kingdom of people in this earth. And Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm. It's quoted directly seven times in the New Testament, or eight, and it's alluded to several other times. It's, it's a basic part of the fabric of the New Testament message. Jesus is going to sit at the Father's right hand until such a time as the period of restoration of all things. Thirdly, God has chosen to bind his name, reputation, and purposes to his covenant people. Like Paul rebukes in Romans, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the sins of Israel, right? God's people are to be foundationally concerned with the reputation of his name. We talk about glorifying God. Another translation for glorifying is bringing honor to. Concerned with the reputation of his name, the manifestation of his glory, and the progression of his kingdom. A bunch of scripture verses listed there. All right, so with that background, that gives me, uh, I still got 50 minutes to get into uh, Paul's eight requests for prayer. And I've given each one of them a, a short, a little title. So the first one I'm calling Strive Together. And these are actually just in the order of which they appear in the New, in the New Testament, by the way, in Paul's epistles. Uh, in um, not necessarily in the chronological order of when they were written, nor are they in any kind of thematic order. They're just in the order of how they appear. So the first time Paul asked for prayer is in Romans 15, and I'm calling this Strive Together. Romans 15, 30 through 33 says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued, uh, ESV and New King James says, delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's the NASB. Now, if you notice the word rescued, I don't want to go into the Greek words there, but we have pointed out that word many, many times, uh, starting in Ephesians 2 when it's used, that he delivered us or rescued us from the domain of darkness and so forth, Colossians 1. That word 
Um, interestingly, in about half of good English translations, it's always rescue. The other half, it's always delivered. And it's like, can you make up your mind? Here's, here's something that'll help you. Whenever a word is translated more than one way in, in excellent translations, the best English translation, of course, are the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, because they are a philosophy of translation called literal equivalence. And then the um, uh, King, New King James Version is a philosophy called um, uh, complete equivalence, I think they call it, and very similar philosophies of translation. Uh which is a way better uh, than dynamic equivalence like the NIV, which is, I wish the NIV didn't even exist, to be honest. I think it's done more harm than good, but it's unfortunately the most popular English translation out there. Nevertheless, when you're looking at English translations, um, and I think it really does help you to compare them, especially if you don't uh, know that much about how to look up the Greek words or so forth, when a variety of words are used, it's a key to help you understand that this is a rich word that not one word could deal with. Rescue or deliver. Um, I always tell the story of my one of my favorite books when I was a kid was The Night the Dikes Broke. And so when you know when you're you wake up and your living room is being filled with water and your house is far below the dikes and they've broken. You, they you they had to, the people this people who found themselves in that situation in the Netherlands in the 1950s had to run quickly to the upstairs to avoid drowning, but it wasn't very long till they had to get up to their attics to avoid drowning. Then it wasn't very long till they had to break through to the the attic to to get on the peak of their roof, and they hoped that someone came uh, to rescue them in time. And rescue has, is a is, is a concept that really is basic to the gospel. Basically, rescue or deliver means I cannot do it myself. What's basic to Jesus as Savior or rescuer or deliverer is that he's saving us from real enemies that are, that are more profound than us. So the, a, a kind of sinner's prayer that says, I made a few mistakes, help me a little, is not salvation. You know, we... Uh, John Bradbury had a prayer tonight that basically was is what happens when you really come to Christ. You begin to see, I need God to save me in every way, shape, form, and area. Like, help! <laughs> That's like the best prayer right there. Help! <laughs> save me! <laughs> that's, uh, that's real prayer. Uh, so that's when you know you're on the peak of the roof, and the 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 level of the ocean at the diet is another fifty feet or so, and if somebody doesn't rescue you soon, that's it. Uh, that's so. Paul is using that word, and he says to be to rescue from those who are in Judea. Now, a big part of the New Testament, if you understand the partial preterist point of view, is that Jesus predicted in his Mount Olivet discourse the destruction of Jerusalem, and from the resurrection. Uh, well, from, from the trial of Jesus forward, the Jews were so fighting against God and against his purposes until wrath came on them to the uttermost that a lot of the New Testament is dealing with that. And uh, literally, when the apostles went from town to town, the Judaizers actually sent people to try to stop them. 
You think you you think people speak against our church? <laughs> uh, they sent people to stir up the crowds and start riots and get and try to get them arrested and accuse them and so forth. Right? Remember, Paul actually got arrested in Jerusalem. So that's what he's saying. That's pray that we'll be rescued. As we're going to see that as a theme in Paul's prayer, there are people who are who are motivated by satanic reasons. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against unseen principalities and power who are, mot- who are motivated by the accuser of the brethren that are trying to speak out against anybody God is using. It's kind of amazing how many Christians fall into thinking, well, if somebody's saying this bad stuff about them, there must be something. You know what? You maybe shouldn't listen. Because... Lucifer is, is called the accuser of the brethren. The very word devil, diabolos, means slanderer. And unfortunately, he speaks through the mouth of God's people. Now, more importantly in these verses, when Paul asked them, but that's what he's asking them to strive together, to, to pray that he'll be rescued from those who are disobedient. He's praying, he needs partners in prayer to pray that he'll be rescued from the opposition to the gospel and to the mission. And he doesn't say, uh, by yourself, if you'd have time, maybe lollygag into it. He's asking them to be radical about it. He's asking them to be diligent about it. He's asking them to strive together. Now, I want to look at this word strive a little bit in the Greek, if you look downward on the note I have together. The, uh, boy, I, would, I should have listened more to the pronunciation thing they have on the, the Internet, so I'm probably going to butch the, butcher the pronunciation. But it's something like sunagognizomai or something. And uh, it's actually, uh, a, it means to struggle in company with, Struggle and company being the king words. That is figuratively to be a partner or an assistant to strive together. Some antonyms for striving to striving are neglect. In other words, some opposite words. It 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 mean it doesn't mean you know we always talk about reading the reverse negative. So let's read. So he's not saying oh neglect the prayer, forget about it, be a laze. I, I'm ur- you know, he doesn't say, I urge you, brethren, by the love of the Spirit, to be a lays butt <laughs> with me in your prayers, or to work it in once in a while. Be rest about it. Relax, chill. Try to get more chill in time. Be passive, slack, or lax. None of that's the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying something very aggressive and diligent. Now, this word, uh, Soon agonizomai, if I'm saying it anywhere near right, probably not, is used only in this particular verse of the New Testament. However, it's a breakdown of two words that are used a lot. It's, it's a conjunction. We were talking about conjunction it's in the, uh, the children's reading program this, this afternoon. It's a conjunction, of course, the word soon or sin. Uh, like the synoptic gospels or synagogue is a place with the word. The synagogue is with the word, logos in, in sin. Uh, sin means with, okay? So sympatico means like we're amiable toward each other. All right, 
Now, agonizomai uh, means to enter a contest, contend in the gymnastic games, to contend with adversaries, fight metaphorically to contend, struggle with difficulties and dangers, endeavor with strenuous zeal, strive to obtain something. There's nothing passive here. There's nothing unintentional. There's nothing that's not strenuous or costly. There's nothing that says as if you can work it into your schedule once in a while. He's asking them to enter a fight that he's in. It's a little bit like, you know, like if you get jumped on the way home when you're a kid and you call on your brothers, to get, you're saying, hey, guys, I need a little help here. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a barroom bra that, that you, that, uh, you uh, didn't do so well, so you bring along a team next time. I thought you might want to meet my brothers. Uh that's really what he's saying. Like, join with me in this wrestling match. Now, I happen to like sports. Uh, I unfortunately, you know, don't have that much time for sports very often, but I still try. A lot of the brothers get together to watch the championships, and I did get to watch part of one of the NBA games this uh, the in the finals. And, and, you know, I don't like the whole thing where they French kiss the trophy and all that. But I think Isaiah Thomas was the first one I ever saw do that in 88. You know, that's a little over the top for me. But but the bottom line is when you know, the reason if you're in sports that, that it's all, that, you know, it, they know it like vainglory and how much you make. And there's lots of guys who take pay cuts and, and even take a reduced role to win a championship. Why? Because there's like 32 teams and only one is going to win the championship. In 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul's talking about his, his own, he, said, he talks about how those who box, uh, he boxes as one who, who doesn't hit just the air that he, he, you know, he talks about how he's disciplined and he brings his body in submission lest he be disqualified and all this kind of stuff. Because he says all those who compete in the games, they all compete, but only one wins the prize. And the truth of this is very few Christians finish well. Very few Christians attain a significant percentage of the call of God on their life. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. That's not a verse for unbelievers. It's, a, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, his primary teaching to disciples on what it means to be a disciple. The narrow way and the narrow gate is 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 for Christians. Otherwise, it would be too obvious of a point. Frankly, it, he's you know the truth is one Jesus wins the prize, and it, and you have to stay intimately connected with him and part of his whole body. He works through his body. He is the head. We are the body. And you can't attain the prize except from a corporate effort. The very fact that you enter the fight has to be done together. So that's the first verse, but it's pretty rich, don't you think? Just that phrase, strive together, 
That's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. Uh, in the New American Standard Greek version, it actually appears twice. Strive together, is, it appears like twice. But, um, you know, get in the battle with me. He's, he's basically soliciting, Paul is, is begging them to become his partner in prayer and to make a commitment to it and to stay steadfast in it. He's not saying pray for one summer. He's saying, I want this to be a way of life for a body of Christians until the earth is filled with his glory. Second verse, join in helping together. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. We don't know much about this in our kind of Christianity today. But listen, you know there's been more martyrs for Christ in the 20th century than in all the centuries combined. If anybody's ever studied the first four centuries of the church history, you'll know the famous saying, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. Uh, there were there are actually been more martyrs in the last 110 years or so than there was in all of church history. The, this planet is filled with places that it's not very welcome to, to, to proclaim the kingdom and to live for Christ. And one of the things we need to be prepared for as we as, as we get ready to start churches, I don't believe that would that we'll have no situations where people burn our churches down or or that kind of thing. I I think particularly we'll run into that among Hindus and Muslims in India. Um, that you know the gospel has really spread, and unfortunately the American guys' gospel has spread in Africa so that it hasn't changed the economy or the culture enough. Uh, so you know it's. While the Christianity has grown in numbers, it hasn't really grown much in cultural influence. But even so, uh, Satan has raised up, especially through Islam, lots of opposition to Christians. And almost every uh, northern African country above the equator has Muslims in the north and Christians in the south, and it's becoming very dangerous to be a Christian. Um. You know, we have a friend who's part of an organization that starts churches among Muslims. And uh, they actually don't even let you know what countries their missionaries are in. <laughs> so we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers. ESV says you must help us through your prayers. Use the word must, very important word there. New King James Version says, you also helping together in prayer, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf, for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Now, I've already kind of discussed the context, but remember, in the New Testament world, you basically have, uh, from the time of Pentecost until the time of Revelation, the opposition to the church is primarily the Judaizers, but it's significant opposition. You know, Paul was stoned and left for dead. 
he received the same scourging that Jesus received. Uh, and as far as I understand from the movie, The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen it, that, you know, the Romans had, they were given 39 lashes with a whip full of many cords filled with beads of glass and rock and, and other uh, sharp things so that it would rip the skin off your back. And the reason that there was illegal in the Roman Empire to give 40 lashes is because they felt that 40, 39 was the maximum you could live through on the average. And the, the 40th would kill. Paul received that three times in his ministry. Just want to encourage you that uh, <laughs> to, uh, you know, it's, this isn't going to be all fun and games if we start planting churches in, around the world. I actually believe that gradually the, the, you know, the climate is being set, if you study the last 50 years in American history, that I, I think the persecution against Christians in America will increase. And I think we need it because it'll, it'll force us to be on one side or another and quit living in the middle. Anyway, that's the context here that he's asking us to help, you know, to join together in prayer. Uh, thirdly, prayer and spiritual warfare for, our clear, for clear words, opportunities, and boldness. Now, the context of Ephesians 6, 18 that I, through 20 that I'm going to read here is in one paragraph of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. So make a note to study the whole paragraph of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, which starts off with saying, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. That's a whole teaching in itself. And then it says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So one of the things we need to see is like in the New Testament, there's this all this opposition up to the Judaizers. Some of the last epistles that are written like Philemon and Philippians and First and Second Peter and so forth are start to be written uh, in 64 AD, Nero ascended to the throne uh, as the Roman Empire, Roman Emperor. And he was part of five wicked emperors that are called the Claude. Uh, oh, let's see if I can say this right. Uh, the Julian Claudio dynasty. Um, if anyone's ever seen the movie The Robe, uh, the guy who plays uh, the emperor there is uh, the next one after Nero. I'm trying to remember Caligula. And there was a series of five emperors that. Uh, basically were as wicked of figures as a Hitler or a Stalin or Idi Amin or any kind of uh, nasty despot you'd want to know. And they brought great persecution among the church. And some of the last epistles that are written in the New Testament, and at the close of Acts 28, at the close of the book of Acts, this period of, is starting to happen. Both Paul and Peter perished around 68 AD in Rome four years after Nero became the king of kings, as they called it, and the lord of lords, as they called it, because they would not acknowledge the, the deity of the emperor, because they believed Jesus was lord. Now, when we read about these things, keep in mind that the biblical view is that there is a Satan— you know, people talk about conspiracy theory. Here's, here's the Bible's conspiracy theory. God is sovereign over all. And he only allows conspiracies to the ends that in the end they'll serve his purposes. His enemies don't intend to serve his purposes. 
but nevertheless, he shows his greater glory by in the end they do. So the reason demons and temptation exist and so forth is you need it. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the pharaohs of this world, the kings of Babylon, etc., the embodiment of the opposition to God is actually Satan and his demons working through the, the nations of men. They work through religious movements and political movements of men to try to oppose the, God and his Christ. That's not to say every political movement is, is, is necessarily evil or whatever. Although a whole lot of them in the 20th century have been particularly evil. So when Paul's talking about this of spiritual warfare, he's talking about he's in a context where he's not wrestling against flesh and blood, but it sure seems like it at times because the spiritual warfare he's being opposed by is manifested itself in flesh and blood people. And often the people who are supposed to be God's supporters. So let's understand that as we, and he asked for three things in the context of spiritual warfare because of the warfare we're involved in. Guess what? You need to understand as a Christian, you're in a war. And there's no demilitarized zones. And there's no time off. Ever. You don't get to say, I just want to check out from the battle and go home for a while. <laughs> Though you, get to, you do get to go home eventually. It's called dying. <laughs> but uh, um, until then, you're in the battle. You're in the middle of a war zone every day. And the enemies of your flesh and the enemies of demonic thoughts and the flaming missiles of the evil one and, and doubts and temptations and everything are always there. And the enemy is always working through people to try to oppose what God's doing, even God's people. Sad to say. So understand this context when we read this. Now, and with that in mind, here's what Paul says. With all prayer, not some prayer, and petition, pray once in a great while. Sorry, I got um, one of those modern translations. Pray at all times. In the Spirit. Does that mean by the power of your own wits? He's saying you need to depend on the Spirit of God just so you can pray. You don't even know how to do it. Pray in the spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert. Don't be asleep at the wheel. Don't be passive. That's probably the biggest uh, thing I think that the millennial generation that that you know not, about eighty percent of our church is is what they would call millennials. Uh, I think the biggest thing that we struggle with today is is an incredible passivity towards character building, towards taking control of our thoughts, toward accomplishing anything. We're just incredibly lazy and passive and dilly-dalliers. We have like a whole way of our entire character has been interwoven with dilly-dallying. We are like expert procrastinators. And we just let things come in our mind and out of our mind and and we lolly, you know, we might get around to doing what God wants us to do, maybe, <laughs> and so forth. We're just 
passivity is just an incredible thing. What he's saying is don't be passive. Be on the alert. I wish I had taken time to, to look up the Greek word there. Wake up with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You know, uh, don't just pray for your own church. Pray for the purposes of God everywhere. Now, I think you have a special responsibility for your church. I think you have a special responsibility for the churches in your neighborhood. And in, in wherever you're called to it, we, have a, we need to pray for every campus ministry at Wright State. And pray on my behalf that utterance, words in the ESV, may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. You know, there's right words and wrong words. In Acts 2.4, when, when they spoke in tongues, it says, as the Spirit gave them utterance. He gave them the, the glossolalia, is the Greek. He gave them the tongues languages. And Paul is saying, that, asking that the Holy Spirit would open his mouth and give him the words to preach the gospel clearly. May be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So twice he mentions boldness. Now, again, reading the reverse, why does he mention boldness? Because you're going to need it. One of the primary spiritual pressures that's, that's actually illogical and irrational, and so forth, is we struggle with the fear of what other people think about us. Now, why we would in a perverse and wicked time period is, you know, the truth of the matter, it's not actual reality, but it's our reality sometimes. It's what we're struggling with. Even though it's not based on real things, the truth, truth of the matter is, you know who the cool people are? A bunch of lost, deceived, confused people who have made arbitrary rules about what's cool and are patting each other on the back. Why do you think there's this proliferation of award shows on television all the time? They got country music awards and beauty contests and Oscar awards. And, you know, they got award shows after award, and they just keep growing. The SB awards for ESP. There's more and more and more and more all the time because when a culture gets godless, all you have is the, the praises of other people. And Jesus, addressing a time such as that, said, Woe are you if all men speak well of you. Wow. Woe are you if everybody, if somebody's not speaking badly about you, you're probably not walking with God right. People, you know, it's my. I always hear about people who hate us that have never met us. <laughs> I love that. Especially me. I don't know why. I don't know why. I'm such a nice guy. My mother hates you. I've never even met your mother. <laughs> well, you know, okay. Praise God. Bless her. Uh, you know, you're going to need some boldness if you're going to do God's will. Now, I don't have time to confer with Acts 4. Uh, 23 to 31, but remember, they're, they're threatened and they're told, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And it's the one place in the whole Bible where God endorses excuse-making, because they actually say in Acts 4.20, whether it's right in the sight of God to obey man or God, you decide. 
but we can't stop speaking the things we've seen and heard. They're basically saying, I can't help myself. Now, the Bible doesn't endorse that any other place. <laughs> the apostles are saying, we can't help it, man. <laughs> uh, we just have to tell people about the things we've seen and heard. It's not, it's not my fault. <laughs> I kind of like that, really, because normally that's not a good philosophy, right? And, uh, but then they go back, and they get among their compadres, and they have this great prayer meeting, and they quote Psalm 2, and why are the nations rage, and the kings devise a big, big thing, and they take their stand against the Lord and against Christ, and then they pray that God would grant them boldness, Right? And after they pray that God will grant them boldness, it says that the Holy Spirit descended, the room was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, these are all the people there, for the most part, were in Acts chapter 2 and were filled with the Holy Spirit even in either in the first wave or the second wave of Acts chapter 2. So that proves right there that you can be filled with and filled with and filled with the Holy Spirit. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, and began to speak the word of God with boldness right after they were warned that if they keep speaking the name of Jesus in, the, in Jerusalem, they're going to go to jail, and they might get killed. And they keep doing so, and it does, in fact, leave this first Stephen and then James getting killed. Now, when he says uh, to pray in the Spirit, I don't want to, get too controversial here, but Scripture interprets Scripture, and 1 Corinthians 14, 14, and 15 say this, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome? I will both pray in the spirit, and I'll pray with my mind also, or my understanding, some translations say. I will both sing with the spirit and sing with my mind also. Praying in the spirit biblically is praying in tongues, using a prayer language of glossolalia. Hey, give that to uh, Stephen and have him get me some more water, William. So, um, however, I, you know, not to be too divisive, I do believe that it can also mean being anointed with and led by the Spirit of God as to what to pray. So I do believe you can pray in the Spirit in your known language as the Spirit gives you insight to pray. And as he gives you insight to pray, it'll always be according to Scripture and God's reconciliation and redemptive and restoration and healing and deliverance kinds of purposes. Right? Everybody get that? But I do believe that that a lot more praying in, in tongues should be praying. Oh, I didn't realize if you flip over, I, I guess I let it go to the next page without being careful. There's that verse in Acts 4.31 that I was talking about. I didn't realize it was on the page. And when they had, had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. We already talked about that verse. Then there should be a space. I'll have to get that fixed before point four. Point four, I'm calling Christ will be proclaimed and exalted through your prayers. Philippians 1, 18 through 20, Paul says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will, uh, NET says, continue to rejoice. In other words, yes, and I will rejoice, or yes, I'll continue to rejoice. That Paul's saying, making a commitment. I'm going to continue rejoicing. Now, he was in jail with Silas, 
What did they do when they were in jail? I love Acts 16. It says Paul and Silas were in jail. They had just gotten beatings. They were probably in a lot of pain. I doubt they had Advil or Vicodin. <laughs> or, you know, and I think they had the real possibility that some of the wounds would get infected. And are they like belly aching and saying, God, what are you doing? You know, it says that about midnight, they began to sing praises to God. It's like, they're like, I wish Deanna Brown was here so we could have somebody play the piano. <laughs> Let's worship. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, you know, and then, you know, God does all this stuff. You know, the earthquake and the prison doors open and the Philippian jailer comes to Christ and all that. Wow. So, uh only then, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, we happen to know from church history that Paul didn't know at that point that it was going to be by death. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, Philippians is written toward the end of his ministry when he's in jail in Acts 28. But uh, I love this thing about whether in pretest or in truth. I actually thought of this today when uh, when we were um, when I was studying this. You know, a lot of you are familiar with the. I, I've never gotten to see him, uh, but I've heard a lot about it, and I've seen similar groups at Bowling Green and other things. But they have what they call the Quad Gods that come at Wright State. People who come and preach the gospel with really bad motives and really bad ways and legalism and calling people whoremongers and so forth. Now, if you talk to them behind the scenes, they claim that they actually know that it's, some of them say they know it's negative, but but here's the bottom line. Some Christians have told me, you know what, we just pray that God will use it anyway, and that we can have conversations with people about God on the sideline. And I would really encourage you to use that sort of thing that way. Yeah, what they're doing is nonsense. It's horrible, actually. But we can still rejoice in that and pray that God will open us opportunities to talk with somebody about Jesus because of it and explain the way of God more accurately. Like it says that that they took Priscilla and Aquila aside and explained to them the ways of God more accurately. Um, leave those people alone, but the people on the sidelines, go ahead and talk with them. Um, in, in any case, uh, let's pray that uh, Christ will be pro proclaimed. And, uh, and Paul's basically saying that his deliverance would come about through their prayers. Uh, which, of course, we know that Paul went on to be with God. Number five, devote yourselves, be vigilant with an attitude of thankfulness or gratitude, attitude of gratitude. Now, we already talked about Ephesians 6, where he says, pray at all times, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. First uh, Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3 talks about that. You can look that up yourself. But I, uh, this, if I had, I, I had actually, had, uh, this next verse, Colossians 4, 2 through 6, I once did, I think it was about a six-part series just on these verses, so I'm going to try to do uh, what I can with uh, these in the remaining time. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert 
in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Now, I think point six, seven, and eight are there for you on the sheet. You can read the the, the bold point and then read the scripture verses that accomplish them. I think I'm going to spend the remaining 12 or so minutes just on these verses in Colossians 4, 2 through 6. First of all, again, the word devote is a very, very strong word. It's not lollygag. It's not passive. It's a commitment. It's a way of life. It's steadfastness. It's endurance. It's doing it when you don't feel like coming to the prayer meeting. Secondly, the keeping alert, ESV says watchful, and New King James says vigilant. But it's like, wake up. You know, how often do we think about various situations that we hear about just praying? You know, one thing I like about certain uh, guys in the the Alliance for Renewal Churches, Ned uh, and Ray are like this. I know lots of guys like this, and I tend to forget to be like this, to be honest. But they'll usually see either at the beginning or the end of any t- time you get together to talk, they'll say, let's pray. (laughs) And I'm like, why don't we do that every time we get together? If you have lunch with a brother or sister, pray at the beginning or at the end. If you're going to study together, pray first. Uh, At the end, pray that God will work into your life the things you've been studying. Why don't we pray more? Uh, Be watchful. Be uh, vigilant. Now, this attitude of thanksgiving, that's an important phrase, because what thanking God for, there's a lot of verses that talk about, uh, like, uh, for, instance, for instance, in 1 Timothy 2, when he says, first of all, then I urge that prayers and entreaties be made on behalf of kings and all men. So Paul is telling Timothy what he wants people to pray for. We didn't include that in these eight And he's basically teaching Timothy what he's supposed to be teaching in the churches about what the churches are supposed to do. First of all, then, I urge that prayers and entreaties, supplications be made by all men. uh, And he goes on to say, with thanksgivings. The reason thanksgiving is so important is twofold. One, thanksgiving releases contentment. When you thank God for Officer Diaz <laughs> or, uh, or uh, that terrible boss or, uh, you know, that you're probably going to have to learn how to stand up to your mom and create some good boundaries or whatever opposition you're facing. When you thank God, it gives you contentment. And the opposite of contentment is grumbling or complaining, being a whiner. And there's some people, you you, uh, you and I have been working with someone in particular. Some people are just like constitutional whiners. In other words, like they've become a complainer and a murmurer and a grumbler so much, it's become a way of life. And it makes you weak. 
if you're always complaining, it really is disempowering. And it makes your character so that you can't stand up to anything. And you kind of begin, instead of developing a, I always talk about developing iron in your soul, you start to develop jello in your soul. Really. And some people uh, have kind of, you know, this addiction or that addiction or this problem or that, just have like a I can't help it whole way of life. And one and and they're always looking for people who will rescue them and bail them out, but they just want to be enabled not to change. They want sympathy, not empathy. They don't really want to change. Thanksgiving is the opposite of all that. And one of the things you, you just gotta be learn to thank God for the tough things. That's the thing. If you can learn to be great, grateful in everything, believe me, your whole life will steer a better course after that. Because then everything that comes your way will become an opportunity. There's a purpose for temptation. Every temptation is an opportunity to grow and to, to learn how to walk in the grace of God and his power, not in yours. Every tough time is a blessing. I, we're running out of time, so I, then pray that God will open a door for us. Well, what we're praying, that God will bring us international students, that he's designed to be part of us, that he'll bring us people that he's gone ahead and prepared uh, for us to share with them. That's a scriptural prayer. God will answer that prayer because he's saying, pray that God will open a door for us. In other words, pray that we'll encounter situations where God's gone ahead of things. In Revelation, Jesus tells one church that, I, that he opens doors and no one can shut them, and he closes doors and no one can open them. He has the keys of David, and he has the keys of the kingdom. Uh, so we are to pray that God, Christ will open the doors of men's hearts that, we're, that we are destined to proclaim the kingdom of God to. That we make speak forth the mysteries of Christ not the Americanized gospel. And he prays for clarity. One of the reasons we are doing this whole series about the eight elements of the gospel on Sunday mornings, I pray that you will grow ever more clear in your understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of God and that less and less parts of it will be missing for you. That's an important prayer. God, give me boldness and clarity. Paul, there's two things Paul's saying for, in Ephesians 6 and Colossians here, that he might be confident, bold, and he might be clear. Some of us are as clear as mud. You know, we need, we need the grace of God to, make, to, to learn how to communicate ideas in a way that they're clear. Lastly, he says, conduct yourself with wisdom, Alzheimer's, making the most of the opportunity. You know, the days are evil, as Paul says elsewhere. So when he says, let your speech be with grace, you, uh, you, don't, you don't have a million opportunities. You got to make the most of every opportunity God opens for you. Let your speech always be with grace, season as it were with salt. Now, here's what we have today especially in the whole seeker-sensitive formula and so forth, 
we sometimes have grace, but no salt. In the Psalms, it says that grace and truth have met together. They've kissed each other. The Bible says to speak the truth in love. Let me tell you, if you get in much truth in what you're saying, people will not like you in our culture. It's as simple as that. We're living in a time when uh, what we consider love to be has degenerated into approbation, encouraging, and comfort all the time, always agreeing with all behaviors. If you care about people enough to make them think about hard things, you will not be liked, and you will have people say all sorts of evils against you. That's just part of the territory. Paul was not always popular. Jesus was not always popular. And Paul was not always popular with the people that were supposed to be God's people. And in fact, Paul makes it clear in Galatians that he had to stand, at one point he had to stand up to Peter to his face because Peter, when the Judaizers came, started getting carried away by their hypocrisy, and Paul couldn't let that happen. I love in Acts when, it, when Paul leaves and it says, after Paul left, the churches of Judea enjoyed peace. <laughs> in other words, like they were glad that Paul left. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> they were like, thank you, Lord, that Paul moved on. Uh, because uh, salt was, is used to stop corruption, but salt in the wound hurts. And if any kid has ever had their you know, parents put peroxide or, or uh, alcohol on a wound. It stings. Salt stings. But if you love people, you, you can't just let the infection grow. Ah, just let them have gangrene and so forth. And that's really an issue of our entire culture right now. And so pray that we would actually learn... Uh, I encourage you to read uh, Competent to Counsel, which uh, uh, by J.E. Adams, or understand what New Thetic Counsel, or when we get into the, our uh, Element 5 or 6, I think it is, of the, uh, of the Elements of the Gospel series, we're going to look at receiving Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at words like confession, conviction, repentance, renunciation, restitution, all of these words have been left out of the Americanized gospel. And people can't really come to Christ without them. So we need to pray that we'll be emboldened to speak clearly and that our speech will have that mixture of wisdom and grace. Grace is important. God loves you. God loves you how you are. God wants to give you a better life. God is an ultimate forgiver. And that grace can only be received if it also brings truth that brings conviction, repentance, renunciation of evil, and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we need to pray for the courage to be in our whole church to do that. Amen.